The 1800s was a tumultuous century of fundamental change, upheaval, and opportunity for the Jewish people. For centuries, the Jews of Europe were subject to systematic marginalization. They weren't allowed to be citizens. They weren't granted equal rights or protection under the law. They were restricted where they're allowed to live. They had to live in ghettos in many places. They were forbidden to participate economically, socially, academically, culturally, and were shunned essentially in every way. The Age of Reason, alternatively called the Age of Enlightenment or simply the Enlightenment, spelled a newfound attitude towards the Jews. Beginning in 1791, two years after the French Revolution, with the themes of liberty, equality, and fraternity, the emancipation of European Jews from their status as second-class citizens began, and it had a ripple effect throughout all of Europe. Essentially, almost overnight, the ghetto doors were burst open, and the Jews were welcomed into the greater world. They were allowed to participate in the social, financial, academic, economic, and cultural world that they were disincluded from for so many centuries. One country after another granted equal rights to the Jews. Jews were permitted to leave the ghettos, to be citizens, to serve in the army, to assimilate, to intermarry. They were relieved of various ritual humiliations and discriminatory taxes. They were allowed to own land and engage in commerce, to attend university without quotas, to hold various academic posts and professional jobs. And of course, this sounds to us and to modern ears very obvious, but this was revolutionary at the time. This is after a millennium of systematic marginalization for the Jews. And this new world raised a new dilemma for the Jews. When they were marginalized, before they were emancipated, of course, no one expected them to love and embrace the conditions uh, and their land. No one could hope in the 16th or 17th century that Jews would be proud citizens while they weren't even citizens. And no one could hope that they could find kinship with their countrymen because their countrymen hated them and uh, mistreated them systematically. But now there's a new question. Are Jews citizens of their country and loyal to their governments? Or are they loyal to Judaism and to Jews of foreign countries ahead of their own countrymen? So in 1806, Napoleon convened what he called the Grand Sanhedrin to probe these questions. And he presented this list of of rabbis of France, a list of 12 questions for them to opine on. Amongst those questions are, is religious divorce valid if it contradicts French law? Another question May a Jew marry a Christian, or does Jewish law forbid intermarriage? In the eyes of Jews, are non-Jewish Frenchmen considered brethren 
or strangers. What conduct does Jewish law prescribe towards Gentile Frenchmen? And lastly, do the Jews born in France and treated by the law as French citizens, do they acknowledge France as their country? Are they willing to defend it in war, even if during the course of said war they'd have to fight against Jews of other countries? Are they bound to obey the laws and follow directions of the civil code? And these, these are really tricky questions that essentially presented the French Jews with a quandary. They had to decide, am I, a, am I Jewish or am I a Frenchman? Am I loyal to Torah or am I loyal to French law? Am I loyal to my Jewish co-religionists or to my French compatriots? And this dilemma, this tension is emblematic of the most pressing questions of the era. Uh, There's now tantalizing opportunities for the Jews of Europe. They're being welcomed into the greater world, a world that rejected them for so long. But to fully embrace this new world, they would need to, or at least they believed that they would need to, compromise on their Judaism. So, for example, in the 19th century, uh, there's this incredible uptick of Jews voluntarily converting to Christianity. Previously, throughout Jewish history, if a Jew would convert to Christianity, that was either the only choice, either flee or convert, uh, or they were forced into it in some other way, uh, or there were small pockets of individuals that went rogue. But here, we see a new trend of the 19th century of people who felt that the only way to be truly accepted in the greater society was to drop their Judaism entirely and baptize themselves. Now, of course, such a decision doesn't occur overnight. But once a Jew's connection to Judaism is softened, it's a question of why stay in a religion that you don't have a real connection to when you could simply convert and be welcomed with open arms in the greater world. Indeed, there's a natural outgrowth here. If there's going to be a weakening of the primacy of Judaism, if someone is anyhow not so invested in their Judaism— And if they see it as an impediment for their progress, for their growth, well, why bother with it entirely? So, indeed, over this century, in the 19th century, a quarter million Jews convert to Christianity. Uh, As a general rule, these conversions are not born out of religious conviction. Uh, They weren't convinced that Christianity was true. It, It took him almost two millennia to come to that conclusion? Of course not. Rather, as the famous German poet and Jewish apostate Heinrich Hein put it, quote, conversion is the ticket of admission into European culture. In 1822, this aforementioned Heinrich Hein, 
he was looking, he was pursuing an academic career, and there was a law placed uh, on the books in 1822 excluding Jews from academic posts. So he figured the only way around this, the only way to avoid being disallowed from pursuing his academic career was the fact that he was Jewish, and he summarily converted to Christianity. Uh, Another Heinrich, this time is Heinrich Marx, he wanted to practice law in Germany. And at the time, in the 1820s, Jews were not allowed to practice law. And because he already had a diminished relationship with his Judaism, he simply converted. And in 1826, he took the rest of his family and the rest of his children, including one young six-year-old by the name of Karl Marx, and he brought them to be baptized so that they would avoid the anti-Semitism and the stigma of being Jewish. Of course, Karl Marx would go on to become one of the most rabid anti-Semites of his day. And ironically, he would go on to form his own religion, a religion that at its height uh, had over a billion worldwide adherents, communism. A third famous Jewish apostate of the early 19th century is one Benjamin Disraeli. He converted to the Church of England and he would go on to become the Prime Minister of England. And uh, it was only 1858 when Jews and people that were not part of the Church of England were allowed to become members of Parliament. You know, obviously, uh, this question, this tension, um, you know, the apostasy is the most radical and disturbing answer to the dilemma. Uh, the softer answer, it came in the form of what's known as the Haskalah movement. Haskalah is the Hebrew word for enlightenment, and it refers to the Jewish enlightenment movement that paralleled the general enlightenment, and it brought about sweeping changes in the Jewish world. The Haskalah movement, in its various factions, they argued that the only way to integrate the only way to acculturate into the greater society would be via loosening of, but not entirely abandoning, the religious morals and social mores of traditional Jewish life. A Jew needs to free himself of the ghetto mentality of the Jews of the past, and embrace this new, this modern, this enlightened, this intellectual, this reason-based Jew of modernity. And thanks in large part to this movement, the 19th century would end up being the worst century in Jewish history with respect to the devolvement of the traditional Judaism, of, of Torah, of God, of a Jewish nation, of an ideal and a destiny of tikkun olam, of bringing the world back and the special role that Jews throughout history uh, have accorded to the Jewish mission, uh, that really suffered in this century. The 19th century, the 1800s, would be a century of movements, of great leaps in both directions. You have the Haskalah and its associated movements that are pushing the envelope 
towards abandoning religion, and you have an entire series of counter-movements, of responses that come to strengthen religion, uh, led by some of the great visionaries in Jewish history. The ideological father of the Haskalah movement was a fellow by the name of Moses Mendelssohn. He lived 1729 to 1786, a German Jewish philosopher and intellectual. Now, he lived uh, before the emancipation, uh, and he experienced some really harsh anti-Semitism of the time. Uh, For example, in the city he lived in, Dassau, uh, there was a toll to walk into the town. If you were Jewish, you had to pay a head tax. Only Jews. So it's a toll that only Jews need to pay to enter the city. Uh, he eventually moved to Berlin, and he was granted a special status. He was called a privileged Jew who was allowed to permanently live in Berlin. Um, no other Jews or few other Jews were given this right. But even Mendelssohn could not confer that on to his children. They had to live outside of the city. And even Jews at the time were not allowed to marry whomever they wanted. They had to get a special permission. Only Jews were mandated to apply and receive a special marriage permission from the government. The government did not want the Jews to profligate and proliferate in big numbers, so they made it very cumbersome for Jews to get married. That was the time that he was living in. And he uh, has... Uh, the distinction of being the first Jew to earn himself a place in the greater world. Uh, He became a great philosopher and intellectual, and he was widely praised and admired and respected in the German intelligentsia. Uh, He himself remained, for his whole life, a fully observant Jew. And he advocated these big, sweeping innovations for the Jewish world. He believed that it was possible to fully embrace the new world, the world that's increasingly more open and more liberal, while not abandoning the old world of Torah and tradition. He believed in striking this fine balance between participation in the rich cultural, societal, economic, intellectual, non-Jewish world while maintaining an affinity to Torah. To accomplish this goal, he sought about an effort to expose Jews to German language, to German culture, to German broader, to broader German education. And he espoused modernization of the Jewish world. Uh, Let's harmonize, let's create uh, a synthesis, a fusion of of the tradition of Judaism and Torah along with the secular world at large. So, for example, he authored a German translation of the Bible— And this explicitly was not to make the Bible, to make the Torah more accessible to Germans. It was the opposite. It was to make German language and indeed German culture accessible to German Jews. 
Jews of the time spoke primarily Yiddish. If they spoke German, it was a broken German. Well, how do you get these Jews to embrace German culture? Well, we'll translate the Torah into German, into pristine German. And through that, they could use the Torah as a crutch, so to speak, to learn German. And indeed, tens of thousands of Jews, this is how they learned to speak uh, German. Now, Mendelssohn himself, he was a great genius and a great scholar and prodigy. He was able to toe the line between maintaining tradition and embracing the highest levels of the secular world. But the masses, the common folk, they were incapable of blending Torah and modernity. And overwhelmingly, the movement that he spawned resulted in people choosing to discard Torah and to discard tradition in favor of participation in the new world. Indeed, many rabbis were very scared of Mendelssohn's ideas, and they feared, in hindsight we see they feared correctly, that this would open the floodgates of assimilation, and they opposed him. In fact, they burned his books, and there was, uh, he faced tremendous resistance with his efforts. But regardless, he attracted a large following and set into motion the predominant trend of the next century of Jewish experience. And while Mendelssohn's intentions were noble, uh, they were quite naive. And history looks back at him as being the vanguard of the shift away from Torah and a shift that did not even spare his own family. Of his six children, four of them converted to Christianity, and indeed all of his grandchildren, they too converted. They were baptized and became apostates. When his son Abraham was baptized, he commented that his father would not have disapproved of his conversion. Now, Mendelssohn died in 1786, right when the Jews were on the cusp of emancipation. His disciples and his followers, they developed the Haskalah movement. And it's important to note that the Haskalah movement itself, it was comprised of a very broad, very wide spectrum. Uh, You had some at one end, at the far end of the spectrum, the more radical end of the spectrum, they hoped to have a complete makeover of Judaism, to systematically repudiate halacha and recreate a brand new modern Jewish identity to get with the times and to reject the dogmas of antiquity. Others, they were content with slight compromises of tradition and to try to not abandon tradition entirely, but to fuse it, to synthesize it with modernity. Uh, This movement was enormously successful. It began in Germany. And as Jews of various countries were emancipated, were granted citizenship in one country after another, the urge to assimilate and to partake in the greater world 
opened the door for Haskalah to be spread east to Poland, to Russia, to Lithuania. Of course, the Haskalah in every place took the form and the character of the particular people of that land. And in each one of these regions, it's really fascinating uh, study to look how in each one of these regions there were fierce battles being fought between the rabbis who opposed very strongly the rise of Haskalah. And in each one of these lands, there was a counter-movement to oppose it that took on the national character of that land. We're going to spend the next couple of sessions zoning in on all these various movements of the time and the personalities at the helm of these movements to understand kind of the story of the people in the 19th century. Uh, these, these rabbis, the opponents of Haskalah, they believed that it spelled doom for the Jewish world. They felt that Torah and Jewish continuity was on the brink uh, and they tenaciously fought this often losing battle against the Haskalah for the hearts and minds of the Jewish people. Now, as we mentioned, Haskalah had a wide spectrum. The most drastic faction of Haskalah was the movement of the reformers in Germany that eventually spread throughout Europe and to the United States. While the less radical position of the Haskalah was that tradition and halacha, they, they conflict, and it's a sad casualty that we'll have to abandon halacha in favor of modernity. We want to embrace the new world, but there's no way to do it with bringing our tradition with us. So unfortunately, we have to drop tradition. It's almost that it's abandoning of tradition via attrition. Reform, they argued for principled assimilation and repudiation of Torah. This movement began in the first decade of the 1800s in Germany. The first Reform temple was founded, I think, in 1810. And it was crystallized in the 1840s, primarily under the leadership of Abraham Geiger. Now, they introduced radical changes to Judaism. They formally rejected core beliefs of Judaism, the primacy, the immutability, the paramount importance of Torah and its adherents were dropped. And among the reforms, uh, some of them don't seem so dramatic today, uh, but for example, they would have the rabbi speak in German when they preached. And this was a huge bone of contention between the Haskalah proponents, the reformers, and the opposition, when today everyone in all groups, uh, they acknowledge that uh, the rabbi should preach in the language that the people understand. But other ones, other, ref- other reforms, even, even to modern sensibilities, sound very, uh, very radical. So uh, initially some prayers were recited in German. In German. Uh, eventually, uh, the prayer service itself was abridged, and was, parts of it were cut. The ones that weren't cut were converted to German. 
And indeed, there's a remarkable line in the preface of the new prayer book, the new reform prayer book that was published in Berlin in the early part of the 19th century that said as follows, quote, holy is the language in which God once gave the law to our fathers. However, seven times more holy unto us is the language in which our philanthropic and just king proclaims his law to us. Yeah, Hebrew, sure, that's holy. But you know what's seven times more holy than Hebrew? German. A pretty astonishing. But the, there was a maxim of the German reformers. Berlin is our Jerusalem. Germany is our Israel. We don't want to be anything but proud German patriots. As such, all references to Jerusalem, to Zion, to rebuilding the temple, to sacrifices, to going back to the land of Israel, which form a large part of the traditional liturgy, they were expunged from the prayer book. If we're proud German citizens, we're not yearning to go back to any other homeland, but the fatherland is our homeland. We are, in the case of the dilemma of the French Revolution, are you French or are you Jewish? When the Germans, when the German reformers were asked the question, are you Jewish or are you German? They resoundingly said, we're German. They renamed the synagogues temples. Well, synagogue, first of all, that has an air of temporality to it. Temples, fixed, permanent edifice. We're permanently here. We're pitching our tent in Germany. We have no plans of leaving. Oh, and the notion of another temple? No, we already have a temple. We're not looking towards any future temple in Jerusalem, which is why at the end of the 19th century, a new movement was spawned in Europe, the Zionist movement. And the reform, they were virulently anti-Zionism because their doctrine preached, no, you're a citizen of your land. You're not a Jew, you're a German of Mosaic persuasion. You're, you're a German who happens to have this one little bit that your religion is, is Jewish. You're, but it's not your identity. Your identity is as, as a German. So the notion of supporting a Jewish homeland, that was anathema to the reformers of the time. And this bled in to the rejection of a notion of a Jewish national identity. We don't have, say, the German reformers, any special feelings to Jews that are not our compatriots. And Jews of some other land, we appreciate them and value them as human beings, but not any more than anyone else. Uh, so, for example, in 1840, there was a horrific false blood libel in Damascus. Jews were accused falsely uh, that they were killing Christian children to use their blood for matzah. The myth of the medieval times was resuscitated in the 19th century. And Abraham Geiger, the head of the reform, he opposed any efforts to help them. And listen to this quote. This is a quote from Abraham Geiger. For me, 
it is more important that Jews be able to work in Prussia as pharmacists or lawyers than that the entire Jewish population of Asia and Africa be saved. Though as a human being, I sympathize with them. Uh, The idea of the Jewish people being a people, being part of a, a community, being part of an identity, not just a religion, that was dropped by the Reform. And they also oversaw what I call the churchification of the temple. They strove to alter the Jewish prayer service so it could be indistinguishable from non-Jewish prayer service. In fact, with the exception of reciting the Shema and reading several verses from the Torah, the early Germanic Reform prayer service entirely mimicked a Protestant service. Uh, They added an organ to the synagogue and to the prayer service because an organ existed in every church in Germany. And this was played even on Shabbos against Torah law. Some temples, they introduced church bells that they rung even on Shabbos to show that we're exactly like a church. They removed the mechitza. The rabbis dressed like priests. There was no head covering, no talas, no shofar on Rosh Hashanah. And finally, the Jewish day of rest was moved from Saturday from Shabbos to Sunday in line with the churches in Germany. Other reforms were instituted by various rabbinical conferences in the 1840s. Every year, 1844, 1845, 1846, there were various rabbinical conferences where the, the German reform rabbis got together to try to codify what we believe, what we don't believe. Uh, Among the reforms, uh, the official abolishment of the use of Hebrew in prayer and study, you substitute that with German, Uh, abolishing mandatory observance of mitzvos, permitting women to be counted in a minion, abolishing circumcision, brismila, which Abraham Geiger wrote in a letter, is, quote, a barbaric, bloody rite. Abolish Shabbos, abolish kosher, even though most Reformed Jews at the time were not kosher observant. Anyhow, abolished kol nidre on Yom Kippur and permitted intermarriage to people of monotheistic faith. So long as someone was a monotheist, uh, they determined that marriage to them would be permitted. Now, of course, this did not go without any opposition. Uh, One of the fiercest opposition uh, to reform in general was Rabbi Israel Salanter, the founder of the Musser movement. And he commented after the 1844 rabbinical conference of Brunswick, he said that the rabbis in Brunswick, they repudiated the Shulchan Aruch. They rejected the code of Jewish law. There is going to come a time when the non-Jews will foist the Shulchan Aruch back upon them. And indeed, 91 years later, the Nuremberg Laws were passed. Again, the Shulchan Aruch was restored. One of the Nuremberg Laws, for example, is that a Jew and a non-Jew are not allowed to marry. And it's ironic that in the same country where the Jews tried to shed from themselves observance of halacha, 
the non-Jews said, no, 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 you will observe halacha, whether you like it or not. Now, there is, even within Germanic reform, there's various different groups. Uh, so, for example, Zacharias Frankel, he was the president of one of these conventions, and he felt that this is too much of a departure, it's too much of an unbridled abrogation of Judaism, it's way too egregious, and he left reform, and he started his own movement, which eventually was a precursor of the conservative movement. He agreed in principle that we have to modernize and update Jewish life for the times, but he rejected this wholesale abandonment of halacha in favor of finding halacha grounds for every quote-unquote innovation. What's ironic about this whole effort is that anti-Semitism in, Ju- in Germany did not stop despite all the efforts of the Maskilim and the reformers to bend over backwards and out-Germanize the Germans to show their German patriotism and to show that they're indistinguishable from the Germans, the Jews were still hated. And their meteoric success in all areas of society, culture, academia, industry, it actually fomented deeper contempt and resentment. An influential German Christian theologian named Adolf Stocker, he coined a slogan that eventually, or that quickly spread throughout Germany. Die Juden sind unsere Unglück. The Jews are our misfortune. This became the motto of the systemic anti-Semitism that led to the Third Reich. Ironically, the anti-Semitism did not abate. It exacerbated. In Germany, the reform movement almost conquered all. There were small pockets of what became known as orthodox resistance led by Rabbi Samson Rafal Hirsch. More about him in a few weeks. Uh, But the overwhelming majority of German Jews, uh, they followed the ways of reform. Now, reform, of course, when the first masses of of, of immigrants came from Germany and from Russia to the United States, they brought with them reform. And in the end of the 19th century, reform dominated American Jewry. So in 1881, there were roughly 200 congregations, Jewish congregations in the United States, about a dozen of them were Orthodox, and the rest of them were Reform. The conservative movement didn't get started until 1886, five years later. And even in America, this I didn't realize until I researched this, uh, some temples, some Reform temples, moved their services from Saturday to Sunday, and prayers were predominantly in English, and of course, head coverings were shun et al. Now, in America, the reform was even more radical than it was in Germany. Uh, the, in Germany, the gravest departures from tradition, they were the exception rather than the norm. In America, the most radical reform became the norm. 
for example, in 1885, there was a convention in Pittsburgh uh, where all the Reform rabbis of America, they got together to clearly articulate in plain English what reform, what, what does it mean to be reform? What are the beliefs of reform? And in it, uh, they rejected the notion of mandatory observance of mitzvos and many of the principles of faith hitherto universally accepted by Jews. So here, uh, it's, it's, I think, remarkable because we don't need to go to Google Translate to find some German document, German language document from 1840s. There's actually, uh, we have the bullet points of the conclusions of the Pittsburgh Platform available to to us in English. So I'm going to read you a few of them. We accept as binding only the Torah's moral laws and maintain only such ceremonies as elevate and sanctify our lives, but reject all that are not adapted to the views and habits of modern civilization. We consider ourselves no longer a nation, but a religious community, and therefore expect neither a return to Palestine, nor a sacrificial worship under the sons of Aaron, nor the restoration of any of the laws concerning the Jewish state. We hold that all such mosaic and rabbinical laws as regulate diet, priestly purity, and dress originated in ages and under the influence of ideas entirely foreign to our present mental and spiritual state. They fail to impress the modern Jew with a spirit of priestly holiness. Their observance in our days is apt rather to obstruct than to further modern spiritual elevation. Essentially what they're saying is the Torah is outdated and obsolete. Its commandments are for a bygone era and we get to determine what is still applicable and apt for modern times. I got another quote. We reject as ideas not rooted in Judaism the beliefs both both in bodily resurrection and in Gehenna and Eden, hell and paradise as abodes for everlasting punishment and reward. It's interesting. A lot of people misstate this as uh, reform doesn't believe in reward and punishment or in the or in Olam Abab. If you actually read the text of the Pittsburgh platform, it's clear that it says they don't believe in Gehenna as abodes of everlasting punishment. It doesn't say they don't believe in Gehenna as abodes of temporary punishment, but that's, of course, an academic argument. So it's interesting that the notion of Jewish nationhood and Jewish statehood and Zionism, that was rejected by the Pittsburgh platform of 1885. So in 1907, this is already a decade into a huge movement, the Zionist movement, that captivated the world. There were three faculty members of the Hebrew Union College, which was the yeshiva, so to speak, of the reform movement in Cincinnati, that they were Zionists. And they were summarily relieved of their duties because they supported the Jewish homeland. Of course, to us today, where uh, reform almost universally supports Zionism, this sounds very strange. Now, in 1937, there was an update or an alteration to the Pittsburgh platform with the Columbus platform. 
the Columbus platform changed the official position of the reform movement to reclassify Judaism and the Jewish nation as a people and to look sympathetically towards the reestablishment of a Jewish state in Palestine. There were still a minority of reform rabbis who rejected the Columbus platform, and they founded the American Council for Judaism, which essentially adhered to the Pittsburgh platform. We're not a people. We don't support Zionism or Israel. So right over here, right in Houston, Texas, across the street from where we are right now, uh, there's Beth Israel, the big reform temple in Houston. In 1943, six years after the passing of the Columbus Platform, they announced that any members that espouse or support Zionism are not welcome. And indeed, there was a split, and those that were sympathetic to Zionism opened up their own temple, Temple Emmanuel, because they support Israel, and they were not welcome in the Reformed Temple that did not Now, after the Pittsburgh platform, uh, there were, and and it became clear, it was was written out in English, you could still read it today online, that's when the conservative movement began. The idea of conservative movement, to conserve, to retain Jewry, the reform is going way too far. They're innovating away from halacha. They're just rejecting everything. Let's try to conserve it. And that became a very big player in, uh, in American Jewry. So we've outlined uh, the various different strands of Astrala, the reform in the uh, 19th century. What about the Jews that re- withheld from adopting these reforms? So those that rejected these changes, they were initially derisively labeled as orthodox to imply one doctrine, narrow-minded, close-minded, archaic and arcane and ancient. So initially the term orthodox was foisted upon the Torah observant by the reform. Eventually they adopted the term for themselves, though it's important to stress it's not a new movement, it's just Jews that did not follow the changes made to Jewish belief and practices of your uh, and these quote-unquote orthodox, they had various differing reactions to the Haskalah and the reform. So it's important to stress, the Hasidic movement, which was a movement that was a new idea or a new emphasis of Judaism that began in the 18th century, it was actually preempted all this Haskalah and reform. And it's one of the great blessings of Jewish history that Hasidism was already entrenched by the time Hastala began, and it stunted its progress in Russia and Poland and elsewhere. The people that were already part of a community, they had a Rebbe, they had a leader, they had more meaning in their Judaism, uh, they had distinctive look, and they were part of uh, fraternity. Those people were less susceptible to the temptations of the Haskalah reform, right? Because, you know, if you have a big beard and you have the payas 
and you wear a distinctive hat and you're part of a community, you're very less likely to just drop that overnight to say goodbye to all your friends. Everyone will think you're a Shadjitz, right? It's much harder to do that. So effectively acted as a very powerful shield against the Haskalah movement for those communities. But there's more movements that were actually launched as a response to this wave of rejection of observance. For example, in Hungary, Rabbi Moshe Sofer, known as the Chassam Sofer, a giant of Torah, he championed a zero-tolerance policy towards modernity. He rejected what we would call him today a Luddite. He rejects modernity of any kind. And he had a motto, Chadash Asur Min HaTorah. New things are forbidden from the Torah. And this is a play in words. There's a mitzvah in the Torah that you have to only eat the old grain, not the new grain. The new grain, the Chadash, is forbidden, is Asur. And he used that to typify or to capture his perspective. Anything that's new is forbidden. That's one movement. In the hotbed of reform in Germany, Rabbi Samson Rafal Hirsch, he started another movement as a response to reform in Haskalah, sometimes called neo-Orthodoxy, perhaps modern Orthodoxy. His slogan was Torah im Derecheretz, Torah with the way of the world, synthesizing Torah without compromise together with modernity. In Lithuania, Rabbi Israel Salanter, he launched the Muslim movement, which the objective was to infuse passion and meaning into Judaism and to foster pride and even intellectual elitism amongst Torah scholars, to make Torah more appealing. And this movement eventually merged with the yeshiva movement, and they succeeded in fending off the Haskalian infiltrations into the yeshivas. So over the ensuing episodes, we're going to delve into each one of these giants and their valiant efforts to preserve Torah and tradition from the existential threats that they were facing. I think it's one of the great ironies of Jewish history that when the Gentiles, when they don't allow us to observe Judaism freely, they persecute us, then we are strongest then we are most likely to steadfastly cling to our religion. But when we're welcomed with open arms to freely become citizens, we are most likely to abandon Judaism and assimilate. When Jacob was returning back to Canaan, and he knew that he had a fateful meeting with his brother Esau, he prayed, Hatzileni na? Miyad achi, miyad esav. Save me, God. Please save me from my brother, from esav. And the commentators point out that what Jacob is saying is that there's two dangers that I'm scared of. There's Esau and there's my brother. Save me from my brother, from Esau. There's two dangers. On one hand, Esau could be my brother. He could be very friendly, very kind, very benevolent. That's one kind of danger. There's another kind of danger of Esau acting out how Esau does and being very violent and very cruel. There is a Talmudic teaching 
that Esav sone et Yaakov. Esau hates Jacob. What's interesting is that Esau is sometimes enshrouded behind the facade of Esau, my brother, Esau, the loving, the kind. In the 19th century, Esau, the evil, was greatly diminished. Esau, the loving brother, arose. Some factions of the nation embraced this new and appealing Esau, assuming erroneously that his wicked ways of the past were over. And Jewish history testifies that while Esau, the loving brother, may have his moments, the pendulum will eventually swing back and Esau, the wicked, will reemerge. What is interesting, that specifically in the region, in the country, where Esau, the brother, was most warmly embraced, did Esau, the wicked, unleash his fury and rage and cruelty a century later.